Amen. Well, they say, you know, at a holiday meal, there are two things that you should avoid talking about. The first one is religion, and the second one is politics. And today we're going to talk about religion and politics. So, uh, you know, this passage, this is the great thing about teaching through the Bible. You don't always select your topics for yourself. You just get assigned them at times as you come to different passages in Scripture. And maybe as you read this one, you were like, man, I can't wait to see what he's got to say about this. I mean, the truth is, in our culture, politics have become something of a religion, haven't they? Uh, we find it at times incredibly difficult to know how we can navigate such a uh, challenging topic. There are sort of extremes that abound on both side of, sides of us, and yet we want instruction. If we're Christians, we, we hunger to have insight from God about what it is ultimately that he would have us do that would glorify and honor him. You know, even as I stand here today, I think about sort of uh, extremes that people can be drawn into. On one side, there's, you know, all this talk currently of Christian nationalism, which looks more like nationalism with Christian as a small c, you know, where the nation is held up higher and religion is just used to serve people, to serve purposes that aren't really all that good. But we also have sort of a secular liberalism that, that says there's no such thing as good and evil and ultimately anything objective like the existence of God in a, in a moral ground to stand on. We should stop talking that way and just go with progress. And we feel the pull, you know, as a pastor navigating different cycles of uh, po political seasons and we're about to come into yet another one in many ways. You feel the pull in one direction or another and all kinds of people saying, you know, pastors need to say this or Christians need to speak out about this. And, and, you know, on the other side, you know, Christians should be quiet and stop talking about mixing religion and politics. And, and all, you know, this is the tension that we live in. As people that we read this morning live as exiles among the nations of the earth as we consider that our citizenship is really in heaven. So what does Romans 13, 1 through 7 have to say to us about that? Well, I'm going to go ahead and let myself off the hook and say, uh, on one level, we're going to stay close to what the text actually says, and I'm going, to, I'm going to disappoint a bunch of you. I'm not going to opine on what sort of political party you should align with and tons of different policies or historic abuses of power and authority and all of those sort of things. I'm not going to opine for my own wisdom about that, but I am going to try to see if there are ways in which this instruction can help us get our feet firmly planted on the ground as Christians to not just live in the United States of America, but to be a global body as we consider these words, we are brothers and sisters in Christ with people who live on, under all sorts of regimes globally today, this morning. As we gather globally as a church on the first day of the week to worship Christ, let's remember the variety of circumstances under which our brothers and sisters will worship Jesus today. It's instructive as we think about these words and what's most important to emphasize. And so here we are. I'm going to just give you the main idea right up front. The, the, the instruction is really simple from, he, uh, from Romans 13, verse 1. Uh, the, the main idea of this passage is that the general posture of Christians is to be subject to governing authorities. Now, this is the general posture of Christians. Uh, Paul indicates from verse 1, he says, let every person, think about how universal that is, be subject to the governing authorities. He's speaking into a specific situation, and we'll talk about that in Rome. But, but the, the main thing he's saying is that uh, it, to these Christians in Rome, that they are to consider that first and foremost, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And I would say it this way, the general posture of Christians is to be subject to governing authorities. The word subject is the same word for which we get the word submit in other translations or places in Scripture. It's a word that can die a death by a thousand cuts. But it means to place ourselves under the authority. 
It was used as a military term for the arrangement of troops under a leader, where there's a sense of chain of command. It was used as an appropriate recognition of authority and order under which we are to live. In Rome, let's, let's kind of think about, like, this, this instruction is given to an actual group of people. Uh, let's think about how complex their situation was. In Rome, Paul was dealing with a practical and very precarious situation. He's writing in the late 50s AD, and a couple of things are true at this point. Jews have previously been expelled from Rome for being insurrectionists. Prior to Paul writing this, under a previous emperor, Jewish people were expelled from Rome and seen as insurrectionists by and large. Now, they were known as political rebels under this previous emperor. The emperor Nero has come to power now. New emperor, new reign, and earlier, early in his reign, he seems to communicate that he wants to be peaceful and just. So you have then at Rome, Christians who are Gentiles, who have grown up in the capital of the Roman Empire, who have heard all their lives that the Roman emperor is a god and has supreme authority and are now trying to figure out what it means that Jesus is Lord in the largest sense. You've got that group of people in the church. And you also in the same church have Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ who have a reputation as not being able to live under any government partly because they cannot imagine any right situation where their special relation to God as a people could mean anything except that they should rule themselves with no authority over them. So you got both of these groups of people here, and so you have a church where one group won't recognize any legitimate authority of the government because it's not in line with them religiously, and another group who is likely to recognize the government as having too much authority. Meanwhile, in all of that, they have an important mission to live as a united people of God together who are proclaiming the gospel that makes us citizens of a more transcendent kingdom. And they got to figure that out. So let's not pretend like somehow we got like some sort of specially difficult political situation going on in our world. This is true all ages, all places, all times, all people. It's complex and it's hard. But the calling Paul is concerned about preserving is the unity of the body of Christ as a witness to the gospel of Jesus while they exist among the nations of the earth. And so he gives this instruction. He's got an important mission to preserve. And let's add to that one more concern. Paul knows that there are an increasing number of Christians, some of whom may work closely with Caesar's household, and he wants to write with awareness that the emperor himself may in fact read this. So what does everyone need to hear? What's the emperor need to hear? What do these Jewish Christians need to hear? What do these Roman Christian, Gentile Christians need to hear? He's got all of that in mind when he writes this. And I think he does an incredible job of threading the needle and being helpful. Into that sort of mix, Paul is writing to specifically help Christians, notice, who are not in power. This isn't actually, the, the recipients are not the government, although the government might look in and hear this. But the recipients are Christians who have no sense of being in power in their government, living under a very pagan Roman government. I, I was going to give examples of what Nero was like, um, and I, I started reading some of them and thinking about telling you about some of the things he did, and I was like, I was like it's actually too R-rated. Like, it, it, we're not talking about people of righteousness here. He, this, is a, this is a pagan Roman emperor that is the governing authority at the time. And the starting place Paul gives is let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Then he gives four reasons, best as I can see in the passage. I'm going to point them out to us. He gives four reasons for saying that. And before, now listen, well, I'm going to outline those four reasons. That's what we're going to spend the majority of our time doing from here on out. But before we get into those reasons, it would be good to recognize that this passage is also a continuation of chapter 12. We don't just jump in. You know, we're used to our, the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired. They're just there so you can find what page to turn to, okay? 
So let's not forget that in what has happened in chapter 12, and this is integrated into what's going on in here. So before we get into the reasons, the continuation of chapter 12, we're told in chapter 12 that we uh, are to offer our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So he's not calling them to cultural conformity in instructing them here, but to be transformed by God, and that doing so involves a deep commitment to our fellow Christians to live out our faith together and utilize our gifts to expand God's kingdom. So he does that. Then in verse 9, we're told that love should dominate the ethics of our decisions, and that when it comes to outsiders, we are to overcome evil by doing good rather than responding to evil with more evil. So where we were last week. He even says that under persecution, we are called to leave vengeance to God. And after saying that, addresses this relationship now to the government, whom Paul had experienced some levels of persecution under before returning to the theme of love again, which we'll focus on next week as our primary guiding agenda. So as we continue, everything in this passage explains more deeply the initial statement about being subject to the governing authorities and gives reason that the church in Rome should take this general posture. I'm going to give you those reasons. Reason number one is this, that the governing authorities act under God's appointment. He says in verses 1 and 2 that the governing authorities act under God's appointment. In the text... There's a lot loaded into this idea that we need to discuss, but let's look at the use of terms here. He uses the terms authority, instituted, and appointed in verses 1 and 2 to describe the governing authorities. So the first thing Paul does is to say, listen, he, he wants us to understand from the beginning that government is a legitimate, God-ordained sphere of authority that these Christians should recognize. That's what he wants them to, he wants them to understand. It's, it's, they're appointed by God. They, are, they have legitimate authority and that God is the one who has placed them. Now, it's, important to, it's an important question to determine whether the idea of governmental authority that acts to bring social order is a good thing and should be recognized as legitimate. Paul says yes and gets us started in thinking about this subject by, by building things out from there. This is a legitimate category of authority ordained and ordered by God. Additionally, look at the more specific ways he moves from a general sense that government has a God-given legitimate sphere of authority to something even more important, that God in his sovereignty has had a role in what governments and authorities exist. So he goes one step further. He doesn't just say government is a God-ordained thing. He says that the, the existing governments only really exist because God has ordained or appointed them. Now some of y'all are start, starting to get questions going, right? Like, really? God ordains evil governments? Now we're into the topic of God's sovereignty, and we could get lost down that well, but the answer Paul gives to the thing is that God is ruling above all of this, that in some way that belongs to the mystery of God's will, God raises up kings and puts them down. He raises up nations and sets them aside, in that, that no authority really can maintain any power unless God allows it to. That's, that's what he wants to make clear. Paul's no idealist. I think it's important to highlight Paul's not saying God is morally responsible for the decisions that every governing authority makes, but that he sovereignly raises up, puts aside rulers in a way that the rest of the Bible affirms. God alone has the power and wisdom to rule over the world and bring about his purposes, and listen, he is doing so, even in the arrangement of times, seasons, and governing authorities. He's doing so whether we recognize it or not. He's doing so whether we understand it or not. The Bible doesn't explain all the mysteries of how God disposes his will, but it simply tells us that he does. 
It helps us to grapple with the fact that God is sovereign. Things are not spinning out of control when one government regime comes to power rather than another. When one administration changes from another. Things aren't spinning under out of control, but God is still governing the universe and bringing them to ends that he has designed and purposed and understands. And we're to trust in that. And it's, it's not simplistic like we would want to make it. It's a mystery of his divine will and wisdom. God uses for purposes of his own will, both good and bad rulers, to bring about his divine will. And Paul is sure to highlight the fact here by saying those that exist have been instituted by God. Now in Romans 9, Paul's already highlighted for us that God appointed for his own purposes both the rise and fall of Pharaoh when he brought Israel out of Egypt. God did that. He raised him up, it says, for a specific purpose. Pharaoh, with all of his evil (laughs) and all that he did to oppress the Israelites, God raised him up for a specific purpose. Well, we read in Jeremiah and find it confirmed in Daniel 4 that God appointed Nebuchadnezzar for the judgment of the people of Judah. And they were to go into Babylon and seek the flourishing of that city and submit to God's purposes. We read that in our scripture reading this morning. He then appointed the fall of that very nation, Babylon, and the institution of Cyrus the Persian to send the people back at the appointed time. Isaiah 45.1 uses some language that we even hear in this passage talking about Cyrus as his anointed servant. God raises up for his own purposes sets aside for his own purposes. And this is where Paul is leading us. He wants us to see by by this first thing that lawless rebellion, lawless rebellion will put us at odds with God and is a temptation of the human heart. This is the reason he mentions that we obey what Paul is saying as an act of conscience towards God and not just pragmatically speaking as we get down through the verses. So the first reason he gives for being subject to the governing authorities is that the governing authorities act under God's appointment. The second thing that he does in this passage, the reason number two that he says that we should be subject is that the governing authorities are limited by God's appointment. Now I've kind of made this point already uh, in, in what I've been saying so far. But I want you to see specifically from the text that in the same breath as establishing the legitimate category of governmental authority, Paul does something that is incredibly subversive in the Roman context. He says that rulers and authorities don't have any authority of their own. That they didn't get it from themselves. That might not strike us as particularly significant. But... Roman emperors and other rulers or political leaders often want entire and unrestrained power and devotion from the people beneath them, from the people they rule or the people that they represent. But Paul says that rulers and authorities don't have any authority of their own. There's nothing particularly special about them in and of themselves over and above the average person. He He does that by using a different set of terms than the emperors themselves would have ever used to describe themselves. The emperors placed themselves as gods where they were the ultimate authority in everyone's lives. And Paul writes this in a way that says very clearly that they are not gods. They're not even to be elevated to such things. Think about the phrases he uses. He says, there is no authority except from God. So you who are exercising this authority in the Roman Empire, you got your ability to exercise it from him. They work, it says, under his appointment. To the Roman Emperor who might read this, (laughs) you're only in position as long as God allows you there. They are God's servants. <laughs> they're, they're, they're actually completing tasks and doing things and causing God's purposes to come about as servants of God. And, and in a way, what he does is by, by describing them in these terms, he actually lowers them. He lowers them in the eyes of the average person who would read this. They're bound, it says, by a responsibility to oppose bad conduct and not terrorize good conduct. 
Paul himself has experienced firsthand local governing authorities abusing their authority. So he's not naive here. And he uses language here that reminds everyone that there's a God of justice who is an avenger against those who do evil, which would include those who use their authority in all of the wrong ways. You know, you think of the most evil things that have happened historically, ways rulers have abused their authority, and as they die, we think that their regimes come to an end, but there is a day when they will stand before God and give an account for how they use their authority And God's judgment will be sure and swift and serious. And we do well to keep that in mind both for ourselves and those who exercise authority. The truth is, all of us engage in both living under authority and exercising authority in our lives. And in part, Paul is showing that through the way that we relate to the government, we live as those who are under authority. There is a day of real judgment to come when God, who reigns and rules over all, will set all wrongs right, and everyone is is going to be in subjection to him, regardless of who is in subjection to them. And so Paul gives a second reason that we are to obey the governing authorities, and it's because they they are limited by God's appointment. So on one side, they are appointed by God, and on the other side, they're limited by God's appointment. Number three, the third reason that Paul says that we should be in subject to the governing authorities is that the governing authorities generally serve the common good. Now, if if you're like me, when you first read through this passage, the part that I begin to start asking questions at is when it's so positive, right, about the government and governing authorities serving the common good. In our natural sense of rebellion and narrowing in on what we don't like, it's very easy for us to miss the forest for the trees and the purpose of government and what it actually brings to the table. But this is Paul's third reason. In order to make it make sense for you, let me try to create two categories for you. You look in verse 13. It says in chapter 13, verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. He says, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And in one sense, we see that one of the main things a government exists to do is to affirm what is good and to provide legitimate resistance to what is evil. And that this is the assignment that, is, uh, that it is to order. Now, let me create two categories for you. The first one is common grace. And the second one is special grace. Okay, uh, grace is an idea that uh, is, is an idea, uh, grace is an idea is the dis- distribution of God's undeserved favor. So what is grace? God distributing his undeserved favor on our lives okay that's what we're talking about when we're talking about grace that favor being undeserved allows us to still experience good things although we are sinners that's God's grace so when we talk about special grace we're specifically talking about the undeserved kindness of God that we experience in salvation So if we're talking about special grace over here, we're talking about saving grace, the grace of salvation, where although this is the Christian hope, right? The central thing we're here to proclaim, the special grace of God for sinners, where although we have sinned against him, God has seen fit to send his son to die in the place of our sin and to offer us forgiveness, reconciliation to him relationally, and the promise of eternal hope and joy in his presence. Special grace is saving grace. But theologians talk about a second category that we find in Scripture called common grace. Okay, what is common grace? Common grace is a general undeserved favor from God where God has restrained the full effects of sin in the world and kept much of the destruction that could have happened at bay. Sin and evil could flourish to a far greater degree in the world if it wasn't for God's restraining influence. This is common grace. And God has provided, in a general sense, for both sinners and 
non-sinners, for those who are rebellious now and have been rebellious in the past, God, in a general sense, has provided much of what we need to flourish in our lives as an act of his common grace, although we have sinned against him and continue to do. That's common grace. He provides an abundance of ways that even those who reject him are provided for in many ongoing things. It is a common grace that is referenced when Jesus says that God himself causes it to rain on both the evil and the good. God provides for some sense of ongoing flourishing in the world, even in a world that is in general rebellion against him under sin. We all experience common grace. So here in this passage, what does that have to do with this passage? Here in this passage, governing authorities are introduced to us as a tool of distribution of God's common grace. They are a part of the way in which God distributes his common grace of restraining what is evil and providing things collectively that are good for us. And, and that this is a legitimate thing that governments do. They, they serve us on God's behalf as an act of his common grace. And, and so, so this idea is seen here in the text. The, the governing authorities are introduced as a tool of distribution of God's common grace. Now listen, he's not saying that always happens. But he's talking about what generally happens. He's not saying that governing authorities do these things in an idealistic way but that even in their broken ways, they convey real benefits by their authority. They generally or commonly act in ways that restrain a total sense of lawlessness which would ravage our lives in ways that are hard to estimate. This is what Paul is, is getting at. You know, I, you may not know this about me, but I love dystopian fiction. All right? Like, how many, anybody who loves that category of fiction dystopian movies, dystopian books. There's only like five of us really messed up people in the room. These are, these are books, you know, where it imagines a future where everything has gone haywire, right? And usually there's some sense of anarchy, the loosening of government, governmental bonds, and, and people living without any sort of social structure in the support of the government. And, and by and large, it's dystopia, not a utopia, not a positive thing. It, you, you, it sort of brings to display the, the real fallenness of human nature. And the books are to aim at the fact that, that our deepest problems aren't just problems of societal structures, although those can cause problems. We're not saying they don't. But they're problems of the human heart that when unrestrained by even some social structures can do far worse than we would ever imagine. And dystopian fiction helps us wrestle with imagining what it might be like to live in a world where literally person-to-person -person power is all that matters. It's usually ugly. It's scary. It's unnerving. It's unnerving to think that we could leave this place today and any one of our neighbors rob and pillage our house and there's no recourse. Where does our recourse come from? Well, by God's kindness, we have governmental structures that Allow, that to, allow us to have some real legitimate recourse. I mean, we should thank God regularly that we live in a place where by God's kindness we experience the common grace of law, where we experience the common grace of being protected by certain things. And, and although that's not always the case and not always done in the most ideal manner, the fact that it's generally done is better for us than the total absence of it. The governing authorities generally serve common good. They generally or commonly act in ways that restrain a total sense of lawlessness which would ravish our lives while also lending support for things that contribute to the common good. The best governing authorities do this in large measure and the worst do it barely. But it is a divine purpose for their existence and in a fallen world it is, it is more often than not better than the alternative. War and endless revolution affects real people's lives and leaves vulnerable people without hope. We shouldn't rejoice in the prospect of it. 
So Paul instructs Christians to be subject to governing authorities as a starting place. He also includes in the category that local magistrates and other governing authorities are servants to do good. It can be important to note that even in in a country where many policies may be disagreed with, the general goods of governmental infrastructure help more than they harm. I admit this will be a difficult admission for many of us, but it is a reasonable one that stands behind Paul's instruction here. Roads to travel on, laws governing commerce. These things are helpful for us. Building codes, things that sometimes we are tempted to rail against, (laughs) convey goods that we refuse to recognize unless we hear Paul's words here that the government delivers common grace in some manner, restraining evil and instituting what is good. That's his third reason. The last one, reason number four, is that the governing authorities can legitimately distribute God's judgment on evildoers. The governing authorities can legitimately distribute God's judgment on evildoers. So in verse four and five, Paul narrows in on one other particular reason that I think is important for us to consider this morning. It's captured in the very memorable phrase that the governing authority does not bear the sword in vain. Now, a long history of the abuse of authority can cloud what Paul is saying here, but let's try and look closely at the text. I believe there's a twofold basis for what Paul is saying here. He says, For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So he comes back to say, Therefore, be in subjection, both for that reason and of conscience towards God. So this is the phrase that he bears not the sword in vain. First, what he is saying here is that the government has the legitimate authority to carry out punitive justice. That's a legitimate authority of governing rulers. It's it's a God-given authority to temporally deal with those who do evil. There is a version of carrying out justice done by the government that allows Paul to say he is the servant of God in a common grace way, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And that that's a legitimate thing to be done. Now think about that in contrast to where we just were at the end of chapter 12 where we're told never to take vengeance into our own hands personally. That means we don't have personal authority to act in ways that are vengeful and carry out that sort of personal justice, but we, we do recognize that the governing authorities have a type of authority in a sphere of influence and bringing order to the world where they can, where they're actually to restrain evil and are acting under God's authority in carrying out appropriate authority in restraining and correcting and punishing evil. See the distinction between the personal capacity and the professional capacity or the personal capacity and the governing ruler? God's wrath is temporally carried out against evil when a government appropriately punishes a wrongdoer. The carrying out of that justice by the agents of the state is sanctioned under these circumstances. Let me just make an aside here because I think it's incredibly important since so many of you serve in the military. Most Christians throughout the centuries have seen in this passage the basis for just military service, okay? This is is one of the passages that is used to explain that because we all deal with the tension of the fact that Jesus talks about turning the other cheek and then personally and how Paul talks about not taking vengeance into our own hand but looking at and go, is it appropriate ever for someone acting in their military responsibilities to take someone's life? Some of you, for some of you, this is not a theoretical game or experiment to play. It's a real part of your life. Now, I'm not going to dig deep into political theory and just war theory at this time, but there are some things to mention that touch on what is in this passage. As individual persons, we've been told that we do not take vengeance in our personal dealings into our own hands. Is that... Tracking, chapter 12, right? 
We are not people who defy this instruction from God of seeking to overcome evil by doing good. He's instructed us to overcome evil by doing good. Therefore, we don't overcome evil by perpetuating evil acts, right? Personally, we have no authority to do otherwise than what was instructed at the end of chapter 12 when it comes to our personal dealings. Now, when you serve your duties of justice and protection as a military service member, you serve not under your capacity as an individual, but as an agent of the government. This is the distinction that is important that this passage makes. Which means, at times, you've been called to use force to do things as an agent of the government that you would be forbidden to use under your own authority in your personal life. I think it's important that you have these two categories in mind so you can distinguish between your personal authority in your own sphere of authority as an individual and your uniformed authority as a participation in governmental authority. Also, so that you don't carry wrongful guilt for situations where you've had to make hard decisions to protect the freedom of others because of misunderstandings of what the Bible says about your personal responsibilities and your personal dealings. Now, that doesn't mean we should just be mindless about our participation in government and think about where the lines are between what is appropriate morally and what we might be asked to do in some situation, uh, both in the military or as a governmental agent. We're to be thoughtful as Christians and do ultimately what honors the Lord and to fear God above all. And we don't, take, we don't, we don't serve as an agent of the state out of our own driven personal sense of vengeance or else it leads us into some very dark places. But here, we see that the governing authority has legitimate authority to carry out punitive justice. So Paul says the governing authorities do not bear the sword in vain and in some manner participate in God's common grace work of restraining evil. So that's one of the big picture things that's going on here. But then there's also the second thing. There's a very pragmatic reason, an element to his instruction to Christians in everyday life. Basic submission to the government and paying taxes and obeying the law and not living in rebellion to authority is an effective way to not find yourself on the wrong side of even an unjust government. He's just talking practically to these Roman Christians. There is no reason for you to live rebelliously to, you know, in congruence with laws that don't require you to disobey God and then incur judgment on yourself because that government can rightfully carry out that justice. All right, so Paul has given us some real reasons to do what he's instructed in verse 1. He's told us that the governing authority has been appointed by God. He's also reminded us and the governing authorities that they're limited by God. He's shown us that they play a common grace role of acting for the common good and have real authority to exercise punitive judgment. He's just building a real kind of general idea for us so that then we can think well as citizens of our own nations, wherever they may be, and how to work this out specifically. But, and he's given us some real reasons, but are there appropriate times for some sort of resistance to the governing authorities? That's an important question, isn't it? Probably one that most of you, as you've been listening, were wondering if you would get an answer to. Um, I've got somewhat of an answer, although you might not love all the specifics. But let's, let's think about when resistance is appropriate. Let's get some broad categories. Number one, resistance is appropriate when forced to make a choice between explicitly obeying God or the government. Now, I would say from Scripture, not to go further than Scripture allows, that we only have this permission when we are being asked in very clear, explicit ways to ignore God's instruction. Not just matters of sort of finely tuned wisdom about what you prefer or not prefer, but in terms of ways in which we are clearly, by the government, being instructed to do things that God restricts us from doing. The apostles faced this in Acts chapter 4. So we're not just pulling this out of thin air. Acts chapter 4, 19, we got all kinds of examples of seeing Christians interact under governmental situations. One of them is Acts 4, 19. The, the apostles are told to stop speaking about Jesus and proclaiming the gospel by the local authorities there in Jerusalem. They respond by saying this, whether it is right 
in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. There's an explicit instruction there for them to stop proclaiming the gospel, and they've been, they've been told to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth, and when the local authorities say, you can't do that, they don't just rebel. I want you to notice. They just simply say, we are going to carry on obeying God. You must do what you must do. So even there, you could argue they're appropriately exercising a sense of submission to authority while defying the instruction of that authority out of fear of God. And I think that's an important way we should look at it. But resistance is appropriate when forced to make a choice between explicitly obeying God or the government. Second, resistance is appropriate when done lawfully, which I would say in an attitude of subjection, when done lawfully in a representative form of government. Paul wasn't speaking into our particular government style. You know, we live in in a time, in a place, where we can actually lawfully resist laws and demonstrate and call for change in social action in ways that are within our rights as citizens in our own nation. And so, the, so we don't just blindly follow all laws and policies that the government puts forth, but we can also lawfully be a part of calling for change, demonstrating, resisting even at times unjust laws. We live under a different governmental structure than Paul was even speaking to here. So we can actually express disagreement in an appropriate way without breaking the law. We can simultaneously be in subjection to the law and speak respectfully and honorably, as he uses at the end of this passage, in favor of good policies while not speaking dishonorably about the people that represent them. And I would love it if our church would be marked as a place where we do not tolerate dishonorable talk about politicians where we respect those who have been appointed as governing authorities over us in such a way that we are willing to honorably speak about ideas and demonstrate against things that aren't good while maintaining honorable speech, even in the face of unjust or unkind or unhelpful leaders. That should mark us as a people just out out of respect for God in the instruction that Paul gives us here. Paul's ending is instructive here of this passage. By position, we're to speak with respect and to honor those in authority, even when opposing them in principle. In the book of Acts, Paul actually, when he comes down into Jerusalem and is arrested, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and he says something very sharp to one of the leaders, and then the the group there corrects him and says, actually, that's the high priest. And Paul apologizes on the spot. He disagrees vehemently with the fact that he's been arrested, but he says, he apologizes and says, we're told not to speak evil of our rulers. And so so Paul demonstrates what it looks like for us to be in a place of disagreement with those who have been put in authority over us and to speak in an honorable fashion. Third time resistance is appropriate when done thoughtfully as an opposition to clear injustice. Here we can see that all the way back to the first chapter of Exodus, the Hebrew midwives are instructed to put the Hebrew boys to death by Pharaoh. Maybe you remember this story. The people of Israel growing strong in the land of Egypt where God has protected them. God allowed the land of Egypt to flourish through famine because of his own provision of Joseph and his leadership. And now, the people are being oppressed. But Exodus 1.17 says that the Hebrew midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. They stepped in to protect the lives of other vulnerable people as an act of fearing God above the authority of Pharaoh. Not obeying a law that is clearly unjust can be done in a way that isn't about rebellion at its core, but justice. You see, At the heart of this, we're being instructed to seek to live in subjection and at peace with all men as far as it belongs to us. 
and to live under the fear of God. And, and, and you may be able to think through other scripture, scriptural examples or situations that might more finely tune this response, but we do see there are some situations throughout scripture where it was appropriate to resist. But ultimately, we've got really good news. Whether you live in fear of authority and the powers that be that have maybe in some way someone in authority in your life has taken advantage of you in some way in the past that has been really harmful or maybe you fear political change and who comes to power that it will upend and topple what you think is so important in life or maybe you come from a background country where you've experienced real oppression and the heartache that comes with it. Do we have good news? We do. John 19, 10 and 11. Pilate and Jesus in conversation. Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? He's wanting Jesus to defend himself and justify him, get himself off the hook. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answers him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And as a result of this conversation, Pilate exercises his authority to pass him off to the Jewish people who take him and they crucify him. And Jesus, in being crucified under the wrongful use of authority, accomplishes our salvation as God rules and reigns sovereignly above all circumstances in the universe. And in this moment, his willingness to be honorably in subjection to the powers that be and the governing authorities of men is the way in which he comes to the cross and he shows that he reigns above them all. Because three days after the governing authorities put him to death on the cross, Jesus is risen from the dead by the power of God and what was put to the bottom and subjected underneath was raised and exalted for our hope and our confidence that there is no governing authority that can thwart God's plans and purposes in salvation. And today we can live secure and hopeful and we can live at peace with other people and we can hear Paul's instructions here and we can know and be confident that there is a bigger thing going on, a greater thing, a more fundamental thing that God has given us to do, a more fundamental mission that he has given us to proclaim and that is the crucified and risen Savior who reigns with perfect justice and kindness and has a mercy in his eyes that goes far beyond the justice of any ruler. And we have been invited as those who have been rebellious, rebellious to the only authority that matters in the end, to come and find mercy by faith in Jesus Christ. That is our hope and security in every age, in every season, not just the personal ones in your life, but the corporate ones we share in nationally and globally. We have the security of knowing the risen Savior and eternal King. I wonder today, maybe you've been tossed around in the last few years, this season of your life, by everything that happens, by all this stuff that goes on around us in the world. It's felt unnerving to you, and you've wondered, is there anywhere that can be an anchor for me? Well, I want you to know today that Jesus is an anchor. He's a sufficient anchor under every regime for us to trust and hope in. And one day, he's going to show us that it's no disappointment, no failing to put all of our trust in him.
I just want to invite you right now, if you've, if you've never entrusted yourself to Jesus, if you've never come to the place where you realize, I'm a sinner, I've lived disobedient to, to the only authority that really matters, that, that you can come home to him and you can return to him and submit yourself to him and know that that judge that will one day come to judge the living and the dead, that you can stand before that judge forgiven and find that he's a merciful savior. And you won't find it because of your own works and your own record and your own ability to avoid sin, but because he is kind and gracious and offers saving hope to even the worst sinners. Let's bow our heads as we, we close and transition it to a time of singing and taking the Lord's Supper together. But as you do that, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, and before we sing, I just want to give you a moment to reflect on what you've heard with God. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've trusted in all sorts of other things, but never in Him. And today, I just want to encourage you to take the first step of a real relationship with Him. Turn from your sin and trust Him by faith. Maybe right there where you're at. You'd say, today I want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. You could pray like this. It's nothing special about the prayer, but if this is, this is the real cry of your heart to God's heart, the Lord's listening even now and hears you right there in that place where you're at. You could say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've rebelled against your authority. But today... Lord, I want to turn from that and entrust my life to you to submit my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him to the cross to pay for my sin. Thank you for raising him from the dead to give me eternal hope and security. Today, Lord, I want to begin a relationship with you. Fill my life with your spirit and change me. Maybe right now you would say, for the first time in my life, I've asked the Lord to do that. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or to walk down an aisle, but if you would say, today I want to begin a relationship with Jesus, and I just took the first step. Maybe so I could pray for you. Would you just slip your hand up where you're at? I just prayed that prayer with sincerity and began a relationship with Christ. You don't need to be embarrassed. I'm not going to call you out. You say, today I began that. Just slip your hand up where you're at so I can pray for you as we close our time out together here. Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for your sovereign goodness and power. We thank you that we can trust you. And Lord, we pray that as we draw this time to a close, Lord, that you would just allow our hearts to grasp what you have determined would be good for us to hear today and to keep. Lord, inspire in us a kind of obedience to your word that takes our responsibilities as citizens seriously but also recognizes where our real hope is. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.